Hello. This episode uh, of the Napoleonic Quarterly, one of the interview episodes, is one which I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be looking forward to, probably because they've been listening to another podcast for much longer than the Napoleonic Quarterly has been going on. Um, I'm joined today by uh, Everett Rummage, of, of course, the, the host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, which, as we're speaking, has has got past Austerlitz, um, that really big uh a landmark moment when things suddenly really start going nuts. Um, uh, but uh, Everett, it's it's great to have talked through um, some bits of the Egyptian campaign with you. Um, and it's great to have you on the Napoleonic Quarterly. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I feel like it's a long time coming. I've been enjoying your show since the very beginning. Well, and likewise, indeed, uh, this may well turn into something of a mutual appreciation society. But I, I think, <laughs> but um, you know, there aren't that many people, I have to say, who um, decide that they're so keen on the uh, this seventeen ninety two to eighteen fifteen period that they're going to embark on uh, a mammoth podcasting series uh, to cover, covering all of it. In fact, it might just be. Uh, uh, us in quite this way of course we have spoken before we we've um spoken in i think it's your episode 77 on your on your age of napoleon podcast the symposium um also featuring j david markham and uh, zach white uh, both uh napoleonic podcasters uh, of note absolutely that was a really fun discussion so i guess this is sort of a a bit of a follow-up to that because it's, it's my my chance to get to talk to you about about your approach and um, a, a chance to compare notes, perhaps. So, uh, yeah, I just really want to sort of dive straight in and um, perhaps begin by asking you where, you know, where did your interest in the period start? Where did it come from? And at what stage did you think, I know what would be a sensible use of my time? <laughs> I'm going to do a podcast about it. <laughs> well, uh, my interest in Napoleon uh, honestly goes back almost to the beginning of my life. Um, I mean, I've always been fascinated by history. Like, I mean, even before I could read, I don't, I don't know how that happened. Um, you know, I would assume that's just family influence. Um, and, uh, the Napoleon specifically, I, uh, my, my family, I, I'm, I spent a lot of time in France when I was very young, um, like four years old. And when you're four years old, you know, you're asking why about everything and, uh, when you're asking that question in France, the answer is like almost always Napoleon. So I just, you know, to me, I mean, I, you know, at four, I mean, it almost blends together. You know, he almost thinks, uh, almost comes across as a mythical figure, you know, Napoleon, King Arthur, you know, it almost doesn't seem like a real person could possibly, um, could possibly have done all these things. And then I remember um, visiting uh, Les Invalides and, and seeing his, uh, his tomb and, and just, you know, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in the in the West of the United States. We don't have things like that where I grew up. Um, you know that uh, the, the the idea of that that level of uh, commemoration for a, a mortal person who lived really in the grand scheme of things not very long ago, um, just to me seemed endlessly fascinating. You know, what could a person have done to have ended up in a place like this, being revered by people like this? Um, and so that was really the genesis of it. But, you know, I, I always loved history. I always was fascinated by it. But um, I was never a very good student. I never really, I never really got <laughs> academics. And so I never thought of myself as ever getting into history as a profession. It was always just a passion. 
Um, and then I reached a point in my life when I was in my 20s where I was, I'd been writing professionally in various capacities. I mean, you, you name it, I've written about it. Um, music, movies, crime, politics. I've written advertisements. I've written websites, uh, you know, commercial websites. Um, and I was kind of at an impasse with that where I, I, you know, the places I've been writing for went under. It's a very hard way to make a living. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, and I, I, I kind of had hit a, hit a, a, a dry period where I wasn't, you know, I was having trouble getting paid for my work. Uh, I started working at a hotel, um, you know, to, to pay the bills. Um, and I wound up having quite a lot of free time. Hotel work is like that. And I started listening to history podcasts and it just, um, you know, it struck me that that, you know, that would be something that I would listen to <laughs> if I, if it was available. And the only Napoleon podcast at that time was Dr. Markham's, which had gone away at that point. It was, you know, done, done. And so there was literally no one kind of still current doing it. And I just had this idea in my head, you know, someone should do what really inspired me was Mike Duncan's history of Rome. And I just, you know, I that idea in the back of my mind never went away. Someone needs to do the history of Rome for the Napoleonic era. And eventually, uh, you know, I just, I decided, uh, you know, this idea is not going away. I've got to pursue it and I'm still pursuing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, there's so many parallels, I think, between between us in, in that regard. I mean, I again, I used to be a journalist, a, a writer. I'm now sort of on the the flip side of that working in in government um still writing but but you know sort of the uh, through through the curtain as it were um and what i liked about about this idea was that you know it, it's something that i can do that is you know sufficiently removed from the day job i i really can't talk about anything contemporary right now uh given given my current job but but i but i i can talk about this period, or at least ask others questions about it. And, and, and another thing that struck me was you you thought, what I really want to listen to, essentially, is The Age of Napoleon. And then he went out there and did it. And I that was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to listen to something with um, that was taking, taking you through the period in a, sort of a, a very methodical way and i think what we've seen and you know in that discussion we had um with with zach and uh with dr markham was that um each of those podcasts has taken its own approach and and i think we all agree that they all sort of stand alone and are able to do their own thing in a way that doesn't tread on each other's toes at all i mean they're completely different i mean if you listen to um your episodes what what's good about what's fantastic about your approach is you're able to um be pretty scholarly and I confess myself surprised that you say you weren't academic or <laughs> because you sound very authoritative but you've got the writer's knack of bringing in the colour and the, the human interest and are able to to bring it alive in that way and so you have I mean if we compare our two podcasts yours feels like a it's it's like an audio book, but 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 with strikingly prescient contemporary analogies. A lot of the time, you know, you have kind of have the freedom to make little points to say, I don't really think it was like this or whatever, in, in a way that you couldn't in a, in an actual book. So it's sort of better in, in that way. And um, I guess Napoleonic Quarterly is it, it, because it's it's more rigid, um, it's more sort of formulaic, and you can't quite get into. Um, anything in quite the same sort of depth or feel but because of its own weird internal discipline that it's got it 
can create some interesting thoughts and interesting discussions in its own way. So, so totally, totally separate. What, 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 what I want to ask you about is, um, is your process um, and how you go about, um, you know, writing each episode because it's sort of roughly one, one once a month, isn't it, or, or, or thereabouts? And the finished product is so polished, and um, you know. Are you starting from completely from scratch at the beginning of that month? And you're like, sheesh, I've got to get to get to grips with X or Y this this month. Well, it's um, you know, knowing knowing the story in advance, there's certain things that I kind of there's certain things that stick in my head that I can't wait to tell. You know, incidents or, um, you know, like I remember when I was writing the uh, episode on. Uh, the uh, the Battle of Ulm, the Ulm campaign. I love that story, and I always have, and I always kind of had in my mind a, a good idea of what I what I thought was the the way to tell it. And um, so going that one was very easy to write because I just came in and I kind of already had a rough outline in my head. I did the research to kind of get some color and, and detail, and then I just went and banged it out. Um, but oftentimes, I don't actually really have much in my head to begin with. And I kind of, um, I mean, I think people would probably be, it probably doesn't look like I'm working a lot. I spend a lot of time just kind of pacing around, thinking things over, or talking out loud um, to find, um, you know, I, I, call, I call it the hook. You know, what's the, you know, what is kind of the, in one sentence, what this episode is about, uh, and then once I have that figured out, you know, it's just a matter of backfilling, um, you know, how do we get to there? Um, and, you know, I, one, one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got uh, was specifically journalism writing advice. But uh, someone told me, you know, there shouldn't be anything in your story that isn't part of the flow to the end of the story. You know, you can take little digressions here and there, but they should all kind of loop back to the main narrative, which is just the arc from not knowing about the story to knowing about what the, you know, what is the end of the story and the significance of it. And that's the approach I try to take with all of these, you know, all, even the, even the big digressions, all, you know, loop around and come back to the big sweep of it. And, um, so I spend a lot of time just kind of thinking about that. Um, and then usually by, I don't know, a week or so of that, you know, plus research, of course, I start outlining. And then, I mean, oftentimes I write these episodes in three, four days once I've done all that work. Um, and then it's a matter of, you know, when they're done, they're like 25, 30 pages. And then I cut down and cut down and cut down and cut stuff out. You know, it's like the, the initial writing process should be like a, a you know, like a, you, know, you want just material. And then once you've got all the material, you know, it's like a, like a sculptor trying to cut something out of marble, right? You, you got to trim off everything that's unnecessary until you're left with something you like looking at. And um, so then uh, leave a couple of days to record and do the audio editing and, and that's it. That's funny because sometimes when I see your tweets and you say, okay, I've um, recorded the episode, going to edit it, probably be out tomorrow. I think to myself, geez, 
24 hours to do the editing. That's nothing. I'm so jealous. But of course, what I'm forgetting is that you've already been doing the editing in the writing and the scripting of it. And that's the difference. So it's it's probably uh, the same amount of work, if not more, because all I have to do is, you know, I, I ask the questions of my contributors. They then, uh, there might be uh, some minor chipping away at the marble to, to do <laughs> here and there. Uh, but but actually, uh, but actually, that's where the editing is. Yeah, that's that's funny. That makes sense. And do you feel like um, uh, again comparing it with 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 the Napoleonic Quarterly, where you've got this, where oddly actually you do have narrative arcs within the two year series, um, uh, sort of quite surprisingly actually. But because you're able to be completely editorial about it, you can. Okay, one question about. Um, the standard narrative and you've made some decisions that deviate away from that standard narrative in some places and and in some others you felt like yeah i think actually um for example i'm not going to skip that you know uh, and, and a few things how, how do how do you go about deciding when to say actually i think this is more important than you know people will have read about this a little bit here and there as opposed to the well obviously i'm gonna you know i I think this is very important, but not as important as some people make it out to be. How do you make those those sorts of editorial decisions in the planning of it? Well, you know, I think obviously I try to weigh, you know, listener interest and just kind of relevance to the bigger picture. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you've got to make those decisions, you know, from your gut based on. So I, I base them on what interests me. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll talk about something because I like a, a personality um, or I, I just find um, and sometimes it's a corrective. Sometimes, you know, I did five episodes on Haiti because it has always driven me crazy how Haiti gets ignored in his histories of this period. So I thought, OK, other people ignore it. You know, I'm going to talk about it, certainly. Maybe because other people ignore it, I'm going to do five episodes. No one will be yeah. able to say I ignored it if I do five <laughs> long, meaty, you know, some of them are like an hour and 20 minutes. I actually got complaints from some of the listeners because they thought there was too much Haiti content. But you know what? Yeah. People who listen to my show are not going to have the same blind spot that people, you know, who have studied, you know, you know, casual readers of this stuff have gotten um, you know, since since the time itself, you know, I, you know, people, if this is your first introduction to age, to Napoleon and the era, you are going to have a full image of that. You know, I, I, I made sure of it. So, you know, there's little considerations like that sometimes, you know, it's, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, I'm just going with my gut, what I think is interesting, what I think is fun. You know, I want a mix of, you know, stuff that if you're an enthusiast, you know, well, and you're excited to hear about it. Um, and I also want some stuff in there that you've never thought about before, even if you've read 30 books about Napoleon. Um, yeah. so I, I want to, you know, strike that balance. And at the end of the day, you know, it's a matter of, I've got to spend a month researching and writing this stuff. I want it to be something fun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. So you've made it up to the end of 1805 and just, you know, looking ahead, have you mapped out what you're going to be talking about, um, you know, do you have a, a sort of number of episodes that you're after or or are you just taking it at your own pace and steadily making progress? Uh, more of the latter. Um, this is, you know, I, I've never done anything like this before. I'm, you know, the stuff I've written in the past, you know, the lo longest thing I ever had published was like maybe a couple pages. So, um, 
you know, I've never written history before either. And so, you know, some of this is just kind of me figuring it out in real time, you know. Um, and I think that's cool, you know, the, the listeners, you know, if this, was, if this was 50 years ago and I was writing a book, no one would have any access to my thought process and my evolution and progression as, as a, you know, writer, historian, whatever you want to call me. Um, but, you know, people can see it or li- listen to it and, and, you know, hear, um, you know, what, what grabs my interest and what, um, you know, how, I, how I've changed since this thing started. It's been like five years now. Well, that's a good. That's a good question. How <laughs> how has your approach to the period changed, or has this podcast changed the way you've thought about it? Well, yes and no. It, it's certainly given me an appreciation for one. One of the big things I've learned from this is just how you know, there's a great line from Tolstoy where he talks about how you know if you're an advi- if you're an outside observer looking at these events, you you look at men like. Emperor Alexander of Russia or Napoleon, and you think, God, they're practically gods. You know, they have, you know, the power of life and death over all these millions of people. They're, you know, maneuvering these armies of hundreds of thousands, you know, in these great palaces, people at their beck and call. But if you asked them, they would say, I have no more freedom of action than a sergeant in my army. I'm butchering that quote, of course. Tolstoy is much more elegant with it. But the point, I think, is 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 very accurate, you know. All through this period, you know, the, 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 the politicians and generals and, and senior diplomats are very constrained. When you look at their kind of, you know, the decisions that they're making from their perspective, they often feel like they have no choice or that they have a choice between two bad options. And it really has given me an appreciation for kind of the grander forces that drive history and politics and economics and society. Uh, that's you know that is where the action is. It's not with the decisions of these individual people. Yes, and I think that's a good way to look at the role of you know the the particular individual who it's impossible not to name a podcast about this period after. Sure, yeah, I mean, if, if there was anyone who was an actual great man of history with freedom of action and able to shape the world based on his own decisions, if there was a person like that, it is Napoleon. But you look closely at his life, and that's not that's not the impression you get at all. Um, you know, he this is a person who is constantly running up against constraints and um, is constantly feeling like he can't do what he really needs to do or wants to do. Um, so you know, it goes to show you that even the person with the maybe the most influence over events in modern history didn't really have much influence over events. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's think about the the period as a whole. Um, is there any any bit of it that you you've been particularly you found particularly hard or or, or are looking forward to particularly um, in terms of? I mean, you know, you could plausibly we could see you slowing down quite significantly in terms of your chronological progress as you take on the the five years up to eighteen ten. Yeah, you know that's something that is. Um you know, I, I started to feel kind of sad as I was covering the 1805 campaign because the the scale has increased so much. And whenever the scale of something increases, you lose detail. And that's part of what I loved about doing the early episodes is, you know, you can really get into the, the nitty gritty of this stuff because Napoleon is just, you know, you know, just one man. He's, you know, maybe you know, during the first Italian campaign, he's in charge of, you know, like 20,000 men or so. 
and that's that's a level of detail that you can really you can really delve into and see a lot of the richness and color and personalities and uh, some of the humor even. I mean, there's always an element of farce in history, um, particularly with some episodes of Napoleon's career. Yeah, and so I, I, I as I'm going forward, I, I am finding myself kind of missing that smaller scale. Um, which enabled me to, you know, focus on Napoleon's life and then zoom out and look at the bigger picture when I wanted to. But now Napoleon is the bigger picture. You know, the stuff he's doing is the, you know, the decisions of uh, of kings and emperors, you know, turn on what he does. And, uh, so it's, um, you know, I'm a little sad to be leaving that that smaller scale behind. Yeah, it's a tricky dilemma that and again in my artificial construct it's going to be that will be tricky when it comes the idea that waterloo will get 10 minutes just like uh the battle of the pyramids and you know we, we talked about that in, in 10 minutes or and that in one episode you're going to have the biggest naval battle and the most important impressive land battle and one will zip by and then the other and then right that's that you know uh that's going to be weird um so i i know and because and the, the flip side is then you have the slower periods as well uh although i have to say uh that haiti will cover up um a lot of that because you know the, the sort of natural climax to that story comes at a time when things aren't quite so busy in europe so i i'm look, i'm definitely looking forward to that but it's funny the way that you grapple with it and then where will you where will you finish? I mean, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm pushing my luck in answering in asking you that question. Um, I'm going to go all the way up to the final quarter of 1815 and um, Muraz's uh, sort of grisly ending as the last sort of gasp of it all. But I suppose I mean you could yeah you, I I suppose I'd imagine you, we would we would all expect you to 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 cover that sort of thing off in a tidying up loose ends episode and again maybe that's the advantage of being editorial you can kind of choose to take a an approach that will fit the material yeah my current plan is to kind of uh, I mean I say my current plan this is probably years away from me so maybe yeah. I'll completely change my mind by then but um, my current plan is to sort of um, cover things at the same pace and, and level of detail and et cetera um, up until uh, Napoleon's exile on St. Helena. And then I think I'll cover, I'll, I'll sort of start accelerating as, as I'm running out of uh, space. And so that, you know, the, you know, he was in, he was in St. Helena for quite some time. I don't think I'm going to cover those six years in the same detail that I cover, you know, the six years between his seizure of power and Austerlitz. Um, so I think, you know, that, that, that's, you know, I'm going to start speeding up and then, you know, I do plan on covering, you know, the, the Bourbon restoration and the Congress of Vienna, the rise of Metternich, all that stuff. But, uh, you know, kind of, you know, like I said, accelerating, not quite at same, the same pace, maybe closer to the pace I was doing at the beginning of the show when I was, you know, you know, speeding right through the, the reign of Louis the 16th and, and, and kind of all that intro stuff. You know, just so that there's no whiplash with you know the suddenly and then it ended. Um, yeah. So I, I would say, I would guess that I would say that my my, my current plan is to um, you know have a long postscript, but to end with the exile. Well, um, 
I think I, I, I sort of look forward to that, but um, in, 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 but all in good time. That's the, that's the thing to say that that uh, we wouldn't want you to rush rush uh, through that to, to get to it. And um, I, you know, I, this is this is a bit of a, a fan podcast uh, interview I think because it's it's been great uh, having the chance to talk to you directly ab- um, about your 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 whole ap- approach to the period and uh, yeah I think um, I think the Napoleonic Quarterly aims to do something similar but in a slightly sort of different way so that the two are able to sort of sit happily next to each other and uh, and and inform each other in 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 their own different ways uh, maybe a f- final question about your listeners um firstly you've got an awful lot of them uh, but um but what what role do you think the listeners play for you as an individual in terms of um making your podcast what it is well you know that's a that's a uh, a complex question um you know i i do feed off of the encouragement from the listeners quite a bit um, you know, that's one of the benefits of doing this. You know, like I said, you know, it, it would be so different 50 years ago writing a book about this stuff because, you know, you'd be, me at least, I'd be constantly feeling self-doubt, worrying if I was on the right path. But I get real-time feedback every month. So if I'm not on the right path, I hear from people immediately. <laughs> um, I also, you know, there's it's, it's great to um, have access to you know, a couple uh, a couple months ago, well, actually, it was a, more over a year ago now. I think time is so so dis- distorted lately, uh, for obvious reasons. But um, a couple uh, over over a year ago, I was writing about um, when uh, Britain declared war on France in 1803, and uh, in that incident, uh, you know, they, they they kind of did a uh, a sucker punch almost, and. Uh, that was announced that that you know that, that hostilities had already begun by the prime minister walking into parliament wearing his uh, territorial or what was it called back then yeomanry uniform. Apparently, there was a lot of jeering and joking because this guy was not a very martial personality, so it was a little silly to see him in a military uniform. And so the members of parliament were kind of jeering him, and then he said, "Guess what? I'm wearing this for a reason. We're at war." And I, I thought that was a great moment, just, you know, the, the, the showmanship of that um, and a little window into the, the, the British parliamentary system of that era. And I thought that was such a great moment and I wanted to describe it, but I couldn't for the life of me find a depiction of, I found out what yeomanry regiment he was in, but I couldn't find for the life of me a description or depiction of their uniforms. So I didn't know what he was actually wearing. And it was driving me nuts. I spent like hours looking for this because I thought it's such a good piece of color. Yeah. I don't want to leave this be, but I'm also wasting my time. And so finally, <laughs> I put it out there on Twitter to saying, you know, does anyone have any idea? And it literally took under an hour for several different people to find descriptions, lithographs um, from, you know, not only, not only like a general, but, you know, year by year, what the, what the uniforms of this very obscure unit, which never saw combat looked like. So, you know, I have been able to tap into the, I'm often amazed by, sometimes it makes me wonder what the hell they're doing listening to me. Cause I feel like a lot of these people are so much more knowledgeable than I am, uh, about specifically some of the details, you know, uh, stuff like that. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to look and these people were able to instantly know where to look and find exactly what I needed. So it, I, I'm always impressed by, um, how many people there are out there who really have, 
you know, a lot of them are just regular folks with no, uh, you know, no academic background at all, really. Um, the level of knowledge is, is really amazing to me. And it makes me, you know, happy to be do doing this because it makes me, you know, see that there's still, after all these years, so much interest and, and energy around this topic. There is, there really is. And a, a proper community online um, of, of like-minded people who, who yeah. Uh, uh, well, and the way I cover, cover it all up is um, I, I don't even have to do the research. I can just ask the questions and then, and if they go on too long, I'll then ask a question based on the second half of it and get them to do the second half of it. So half of the time, even then, I'm, I'm sounding cleverer than, than I actually am. Um, okay, so here's a, quick, a couple of quickfire questions. What's your favourite book? Put you on the spot here. Your favourite book about the period or, or one that springs to mind at least? Uh, I, I'm constantly changing my mind about this. Kind of the stock answer I give people is um, uh, Georges Lefebvre's two-volume, I, I believe it's just called Napoleon. Um, that's uh, a book that really kind of, I, I started, I, I bought it kind of on an impulse. I found it in a used bookstore, like near when I started the show. And I was at the point where I was just going to used bookstores and buying books that had the word Napoleon on them. <laughs> yes. That book really, um, it's like destiny because I was able to find, I, I was living in this, you know, small college town in Texas. I went to the, you know, the only good used bookstore in town and I found this really beautiful, pristine early edition of it. And I just, it, you know, looking at it, I was like, oh, wow, this seems like something special. And when I delved into it, it was, that was the first time I really read something by an academic where I felt like. You know, this guy seems to see things exactly the way I do. And that's pretty amazing that, you know, that this guy writing, I believe that book is from the 70s, 60s, maybe. Um, and it really, the, the, the writing, the, the style, the um, kind of his point of view felt very much like a, you know, an extremely experienced, polished and, and well-informed version of the way I was trying to look at things. And so that was really a eureka moment for me and, and something that really inspired me. Um, so I'll, I'll always have a soft spot for that book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's a good recommendation, absolutely. And and who would you say um, is the, I mean, this is getting a bit silly now, but the sort of the cartoon villain of the period or, you know, the kind of baddie that you love to hate? Um, I mean, I really don't. That's actually been one of the, 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 the sort of puzzling things for me doing this is I don't, really think about the Napoleonic Wars in those terms. And it seems to me that quite a lot of people who are very, very invested in them do, um, including even some academics out there, seem to really have this sort of good guy, bad guy, almost like a World War II paradigm about it. And I don't, I, I don't know, I, I have a hard time, you know, I think on a certain level, you can look at the French as sort of I mean, uh, the Marxists would call them the historically progressive force. You know, that's the more modern, um, that's the more modern side of the war. If you had to pick one, sure. and again, you can find these diehard reactionaries fighting for the French, and you can find sort of enlightenment liberal gentlemen fighting for the British. So that's not even a very clear delineation. And then again, also, you know, what's historically progressive about you know slaughtering a village full of peasants? You know. So it, it, it's all perspective, and I and I just don't. I don't know. I have a hard time looking at this really in terms of good or evil. 
um, you know, people sometimes ask me which side I would have fought on if if I was part of it, <laughs> and the answer is, well, what country was I born in? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe it's being American. You know, my my family was like on the frontier, like up in Canada and, and, and in the Appalachians here. So I. I have no personal feelings really about this. Um, and I don't feel like it has much, you know, it's different when like, for instance, I do not feel that way about the civil war because the civil war, uh, the American civil war does have quite a bit of um, relevance to modern American politics. And so that's something that I do feel actually quite passionately that there is a, a right side of that conflict. And there is sort of a right and a wrong perspective on that conflict that is important um, to modern American society. Maybe not if you're not American, but here at least it does have quite a bit of significance. And I don't feel the same way about the Napoleonic Wars. I don't. I I see that as a uh, fascinating and tragic. I mean, I, I've compared it to the Iliad before, and it seems to me, you know, you wouldn't read the Iliad with, you know, your main idea being Hector was such a bad guy. I got to tell everyone what a <laughs> what a jerk he was, and everything he did was wrong. You, you know, that's that's just not how I read it. So there's no Waluigi in the Napoleonic Napoleonic Wars. No, but but your your serious point about the the sort of momentum that seems the ball that you know the stone that starts rolling with the French Revolution and somehow events just follow events and it and it and it it becomes almost this sort of irresistible force. No wonder Napoleon, even Napoleon Bonaparte, felt that it was tricky to try to you know he didn't have a, as much wiggle room as he would have liked. And I think that's probably the most gripping for me a part of this that once you're sort of strapped in for the ride um you have to sort of look at how things play out and you think about that um uh was it the budget speech that pitt gave in uh early 1792 and he was predicting 15 years of peace or at least looking forward to the happy consequences of that and you think, geez, you uh, you don't know what you're in for here, um, and and perhaps that's what makes this narrative that the, the fact that we can both try and sustain the narrative over such a long period of time because it is one one long narrative. Forget uh, Amiens, you know, th th this this is rolling all the way through, and um, uh, having enormous consequences not just for Europe but um, but for the whole world. Yeah, I mean, Hegel called him history on horseback, right? And that's a very apt line, I've always thought. And it's just, you know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this because I recently did an episode kind of wrapping up after Austerlitz. And I, I was thinking quite a lot about this. And to me, you know, you look at it from the French perspective, and they're saying, you know, Europe has been torn apart by war for centuries now between these great powers. We have a chance to end that forever. But if we can come out on top and impose our will on the continent, that will be over forever. And there'll be peace, finally. And if we lose, all the old, you know, the old hated system will come back. They'll put the Bourbon back on the throne. They'll put the Jews back in their chains. They'll, you know, oppress the peasantry. They'll roll back the constitution that we'll lose everything that we fought for for years. That can't happen. And you, I, I empathize with that very much. But then you look at, you know, say the British perspective. And, you know, there's this madman who came out of nowhere who is just redrawing the map of the continent at will you know trampling over anyone who stands in his way um he we, we know that he wants to you know reduce our country to penury and, and make us basically a vassal to france 
um, you know, what, what what will become of the, you know, obviously the, you know, Britain was not a free country at that point, I wouldn't say, but they certainly considered themselves a free country at that point. And what would become of that if, if uh, the French came to dominate? Um, and that's, you know, I empathize with that as well. And, I, and that seems, you know, probably if I was in their shoes, I would have thought the same thing. And to me, that's, that's drama. That's um, not only that, it's understanding what drove this. And so that to me is so much more interesting and fruitful than trying to find a villain or trying to, you know, who's the Waluigi, like you said, you know, uh, to me, I would so much rather talk about, you know, the, the clash of these higher aspirations and uh, the, the, the very real concerns that both of these sides had for their own security. That, to me, is, is just a better story. It's more interesting. It's more intellectually fruitful to look at that stuff. And so that's why I don't, I don't like get into that villain talk as much as some other people do. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And I suppose really there are villains in, in, in every period of history, but it's what makes the, it's what makes this particular period so interesting is that broad thrust. I mean, I I, I visited uh, the battlefield of Volmy um, a few months back and um, just couldn't help but think, you know, in counterfactual mode, if this had gone the other way, who knows what would have followed? And the whole weight of what follows like you know uh being contingent on the outcome of that battle is itself debatable of course but yeah that's that's really that's really what what get, what gets this going so um there we are that's that probably uh, in a funny roundabout way probably explains in quite a profound way why we're both so keen on this period and articulates that that the, there's this great sort of thrust of history um in this period which um you sort of just look on with jaw agape uh and uh, but at the same time can you can explain and describe and uh, understand a little bit more about it in the process so there we go well everett um i think all that remains for me to say is thank you so much it's been great talking to you perfect <laughs>